Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. As I said in the headlines of the show a few minutes ago, we're going to take a break from politics today. We've had a busy week in politics, which culminated yesterday with a special show we did on the inauguration of Brian Kemp, now beginning his second term as a governor. But uh, many of you out there know that one of the great loves of my life has always been uh, theater. And when I have an opportunity to do a show and um, either expand on your interest in theater or maybe introduce you to aspects of theater that you hadn't been familiar with, I really look forward to that. And with that in mind, we are talking today to the chief theater critic for the New York Times, Jesse Green, who, along with Mary Rogers, um, as his collaborator, wrote Shy, the alarmingly outspoken memoirs of Mary Rogers. Mary Rogers, the daughter of Richard Rogers, the great composer who wor- whose work with Rogers and Hammerstein uh, in many ways was the epitome of American musical theater in the 20th century. Mary Rogers had her own career as a writer of a hit uh, musical. She was married twice. She has an extraordinary wit, which you'll hear about uh, in our show today. She had a difficult relationship with both of her parents. Uh, All of this goes toward making uh, Shy just a remarkable book to read. And and Jesse Green, first of all, thank you so much for being here. I, I loved reading this book. And frankly, when I finally put it down, I sort of thought, oh no, I don't get to be with Mary Rogers any longer. And I imagine there are some ways in which after she died and you went on to uh, complete her memoir, you must have felt the same way. <clears throat> yes, that's probably why it took me so long. I, you know, <laughs> you know, as a journalist, I've been trained not to get attached to subjects, but that wasn't our relationship. I, it wasn't a journalist-subject <laughs> relationship in that way. And in some ways, she had become a kind of anti-mame figure to me, like mm. y- your mother, except better, you know, because she's not actually <laughs> your mother. And um, I, we just had the best time together for years uh, talking about and then actually working on uh, the book. And when she died, I, I grieved for quite a while. Uh, it, it was a great loss to me. And I think what I wanted to create in the book and what I think you're getting at, and I appreciate it, is that the experience of the book should be like being in a room like being at, at a dinner party, sitting next to her, and just having the best conversation you've ever had. Oh, and what a dinner party guest she would have been. I mean, she had such a sharp tongue, such an exceptional wit. And I'm going to talk about some examples of that as we move forward. But let's start with what brought you together with Mary Rogers in the first place. I believe I'm correct that you went to meet with her while you were at New York Magazine, was it for New York Magazine or were you doing a piece for the Times Magazine when her son, Adam Gettle, was preparing, I think it must have been Light in the Piazza. Is that right? Yeah, it was the New York Times Magazine. I had been asked to do a profile of her son, Adam Gettle, as you say, 
this was around the time that his show, which later went on to win the Tony Award as Best Musical, uh, was was in development and trying out in Seattle uh, at the Intamon <laughs> Theater. And I went out there, spent a lot of time with him, a fascinating character on his own. And I thought, well, you know, I've heard of his mother a lot. I mean, I knew of her uh, big her big hit, Once Upon a Mattress. I was in it myself as a kid, twice. <laughs> Uh, as I think half of America has been. And I thought, well, I bet she might have something interesting to say. Little did I know. Uh, I showed up at uh, her apartment on Central Park West, and she and her husband, Hank Gettle, this is her second husband, uh, welcomed me with uh, more information than a journalist should ever be given. <laughs> you know, there are, there are some people you can't get anything out of, and then there's this. This was like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to be the censor here because I'm being given too much stuff that probably shouldn't be public. I, it was a very peculiar position to be in. But boy, was it fun as she dished on herself, dished on her son, dished on her father. And I began to realize what an astonishing life this woman has led being in between these two greats and being an underappreciated artist in her own right. Um, and one whose career was really fascinating, but even so, perhaps not quite as fascinating as the people she knew and the life she led among them. So um, from that uh, first meeting, uh, what developed later was that she had a contract to uh, write her autobiography, and you uh, became involved. I, you ended up, what, what I think the process was, is that you would meet with her and she would talk out her story with you and you would massage what she was telling you, put it in the form that eventually became the book Shy, the alarmingly outspoken memoirs of Mary Rogers, right? That's mostly right. The sequence is a little off because it was, you know, it was an unusual situation. First of all, it took a long time for her to, uh, to decide to go ahead with it. She tried to write some of it herself and hated what she had written and she returned the uh the contract and then she started it up again and then she stopped again and she finally realized that she just wasn't having fun anymore and uh she wanted to have fun and that's when it occurred to her we had become friends in the meantime since that first meeting she thought well maybe we would have fun if we did it together so yes then as you say we started meeting uh, and met every week, twice a week for four to five hour sessions, which tended to drag on into lunch and to hilarity. And uh, <laughs> the part of it that's really in some ways sad and in some ways was liberating is that she was getting sicker during that period and I was not noticing it, which is to say I was not emotionally capable of noticing it. I, You know, the way you might not want to see any loved one deteriorating. I would not, I refused to see it. And she kept saying, you know, let's get this going because I'm not going to be here much longer. And I was like, oh, Mary, you know, that just stop being such a pessimist. But um, by the time she did die, I had only written 10 pages. So uh, which she had seen and commented on and her famously, at least to me, her comment was make it funnier, make it meaner. Uh, <laughs> Which I, which I found a little difficult to imagine since the chapter I showed her was called Hostilities. But um, <laughs> the rest of the book, all 400 additional pages of it, was written after she died based on my 
uh, typewritten notes of all of those hundreds of hours of discussion. So one of the reasons that I wanted to have you talk about the process a little bit, <clears throat> excuse me, is because one of the most important things about this book is that you began writing footnotes, um, commenting or amplifying, explaining things that Mary was saying to you that you were writing as the book. And in many ways, your footnotes become a dialogue that we get to listen in on between you and Mary Rogers. Um, and we're going to talk about that as the show goes on. Uh, but just as one, there are so many wonderful examples of your footnotes, which show in some cases the same width that she has. On the, I think it's on the very first page of the book. She mentions daddy at the very beginning of the book. And you have a footnote uh, for that in which you say, if you've read this far, which is the very beginning, you probably already know that daddy was Richard Rogers, composer, womanizer, alcoholic genius. <laughs> I don't think she could have said it better herself, Jesse. <laughs> well, there's there's a lot packed into that. That is, in fact, the first word of the book, daddy. And that is the first note. And that's on purpose. I, I really wanted to establish from the beginning that this is a dialogue. Uh, even if you don't know at first, who is this other voice down at the bottom of the page? But, uh, you know, it was it was actually a problem that she and I wrestled with as we were talking, even though we weren't yet, you know, uh, the actual writing hadn't begun. We knew there was going to be this problem, which is that I was insistent to her and to myself that the only reason this book should exist would be for people to have that what I we earlier discussed as the dinner party experience to be sitting next to her and hear that incredible voice of hers. Now, she wasn't someone who would refer to her father, as you would in a biography, as Richard Rogers, the great American composer. She said, <laughs> Daddy. And her mother was not Dorothy Rogers, the icy princess socialite. She was mummy. Um, so I had to find a way to let her talk in her words and yet bring the readers uh, aboard before they got lost because she would be not only referring to them, but hundreds of people and hundreds of situations with which they might not be familiar. So um, you cannot tell Mary Rogers' story without telling the story in many ways of her parents, particularly her father. Um, Richard Rogers was, as I said, one of the greatest composers in American um, in musical theater history. Um, he, she would sit and listen to him at the piano. She talks about how much he loved doing uh, the job of sitting at the piano and creating his melodies after Oscar Hammerstein would send him uh, the lyrics. Uh, but he was a stern, cold taskmaster in many ways. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read uh, back to you some of what you've written in that context. Talking about her dad, daddy, she says, he hated having his time wasted with intangible things like emotions and found excesses of any sort distasteful. I've always had a largely, a hugely broad smile, apparently too huge for him. When I had pictures taken, he'd say, don't smile. And he'd wince every time I'd laugh loudly, which is another thing I do a lot. He would actually recoil a lot. And she goes on from there to talk about he criticized her for her weight all of the time. I mean, it what a troubled uh, youth uh, Mary Rogers had, even though she was growing up with a genius in the household. 
Yes, and in a in, and in a an atmosphere of incredible privilege too. Uh, but as you say, you know, you know, he was somebody who uh, who whose focus was entirely on his work and whose happiness only existed in the music. It was not available for Mary or for her sister. And I have to say, Mary gave as good as she got. She wrote a book later for kids called The Rotten Book, and it was basically about her as a kid. She <laughs> responded to this kind of uh, pressure and uh, distaste from her parents, and, and her mother was an even worse story in many ways, by being, you know, extremely difficult and fighting her way out of these constraints as in every way she could, which when you're four or five means being mischievous. When you're 18 and 19 might mean something else, as we may get to. But in any case, the really fascinating thing is that she came to forgive her father. Uh, and it she came to forgive him through the only means in which he was able to show her his love, which was through his music. And all she ever needed from him, finally, was to listen to Carousel or to some of the wonderful songs he wrote with uh, Larry Hart before Rodgers and Hammerstein, and she could forgive him. Um, <clears throat> she says at one point um, late in the book, if, if I could have one wish, it would have been to have had a, a loving mother. Dorothy Rogers was as cold as her father was. She was an interesting uh, person, a socialite, uh, came from money, um, had means, uh, she invented the Johnny Mop, which I remember when I was a kid, actually. <laughs> I remember when the Johnny market, Mop first came on the market. But but um, at one point, you and, and Mary together, I guess we should talk about this, um, wrote that uh, her first in her first book, she was she uh, Dorothy uh, Rogers uh, gave tips to housewives on how they could do various things, accomplish various tasks. Among them was how to make an aspic. And. The line that Mary Rogers uses is, what is she saying? You can quote it back to me, I'm sure, rather than me saying it. Uh, no, you, you, you go ahead and do it. I'm not looking at the exact wording and the exact she wording says, is, is everything. She, well, she essentially says um, that aspect, it was like my parents' ma marriage, cold and yeah. gelatinous. But the fact <laughs> that, 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 that her, her one great wish is to have had a mother- who loved her, I think tells us a lot about how she went through, especially the earlier parts of her life, trying to find a place where she could be accepted and loved. And part of that um, was the relationship that she established when she was 13 years old and met Stephen Sondheim for the first time. Steve Sondheim was a year older. He was essentially one of the unofficially adopted children of the Hammersteins because he came out of a horrible uh, situation with his mother. And so she met Stephen Sondheim when they were both young teenagers. And from that first meeting on, he became the love of her life, but it was never really fulfilled. That in another aspect of this story where um, she's looking for the love that she's having a hard time finding. Well, it's a problem if you grow up in this atmosphere of, on the one hand, extreme artistic excellence, cultural centrality, and 
terrible parenting <laughs> all at the same time you're you 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 have a you have privilege in a way but on the other hand all that privilege is uh is uh, contradicted or subtracted from you by the the uh, pressures and the things that you're not permitted to do and let's add to this that she was a woman who was interested in doing a job that had only been done by men that is to say composing mm -hmm. for for the theater and she was in her youth uh, a Jewish girl in a mostly non-Jewish world and, you know, couldn't do all the things her other friends were doing. They Jewish girls couldn't even have, uh, couldn't debut, couldn't come out, couldn't meet men in the way that uh, her non-Jewish friends were able to. And she was desperate to meet a man, N not because she was especially randy necessarily, but it was the way she could see to get out from under her parents' thumbs. So, uh, you you put into this cauldron a character like Sondheim, who, if you've if you ever met him at any time in his life, and I, I I met him you know when he was an adult, of course, but I can imagine from the first meeting when he was fourteen and she was thirteen, as you say at the Hammerstein Farm in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, it 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 must have knocked her over like a rock thrown at her head. His talent, his weirdness. His humor. The first thing they did was play a game of chess. He or three games of chess. He beat her like in thirty seconds. <laughs> and yeah. then he went to the piano and he he played Gershwin, uh, and and that was it. She was done. Um, here's, and here's how what that played here... out. I... Go ahead. No, I apologize. I don't mean to interrupt you. Uh, let me read it real quick. I was dazzled by Steve. This was when she, she was thirteen. Completely stunned. I knew right away he was brilliant. He just reeked of talent, which not illogically was always the biggest turn on uh, for me. And, and as you and she wrote together, he truly became the love of her life. Well, I, this was one of those things in, the, in talking with Mary over the years. I knew a lot about her by the time we started working on the book, but there was a fair number of things that she told me that made my jaw drop to the ground, even having known her for 10 years by that point. And uh, of course I knew she was close with Sondheim. There's millions of stories about their friendship, funny stories, inspirational stories. Uh, she was uh, integral to uh, his thinking about the show Company because he had never been married, but she had by that point been married twice. So he basically interviewed her to try to get the goods on what marriage was like so he could write better about it. And uh, they had written together and uh, they, were, they had a famous song together. I mean, there were all kinds of things everyone knew, but the, the degree and the depth of the feeling that she had for him and some of the things I learned about how that feeling played out late, you know, when in her late twenties uh, were things I had never heard, no one had ever heard and that she insisted on telling. Uh, despite what he or anyone else, her family, uh, might have preferred. What's an example of that? Well, as you say, she knew from the beginning that he was in some ways the love of her life. That doesn't mean that she didn't have other loves and that she didn't have a very successful second marriage. Her first marriage was kind of a disaster, except for the fact that it produced three great kids. Uh, and we can talk about that if you want. But uh, in between her marriages, as she was now in, in, a, in some ways in a worse situation, because not only was she single, which was difficult enough, uh, and trying to be a full-time composer, 
She had three children under the age of five when this started. And the only solution she could think was to find a rich husband or somebody who could help her at least to to uh, take care of her children and who would not stand in the way of her goals. Uh, this is something that men never think twice about. But women, and particularly in that era, we're talking about the late 50s now, it, it was almost unheard of. And she went through this, it's a rather funny section of the book where she's basically trying to find out what, what would it mean to have a, a meaningful, passionate an equal relationship with a man. And she basically tries all of the worst possible people. <laughs> and yeah. one, of them's a, one of them's a spy and one of them's a, a lech. And, you know, there are, several of them are gay and uh, like her as her first husband was. But what she realizes at some point is the person who moved her the most, who stimulated her the most, uh, it was had always been Sondheim. And at one point, he she wrote him a letter and said, listen, you keep telling me that everyone I meet and introduce you to isn't good enough for me. So what are you going to do about it? I won't use the language that she actually used, but um, you can read it in the book. And, uh, uh, and he proposed to her that they try a trial marriage. Uh, and for about a year, that's what they did. And it's really really uncomfortable <laughs> i mean yeah, there, she, aside she, from the fact that yeah, yeah. go ahead and finish well all i was going to say is he, i mean we, we we later learn and maybe he was still finding his own sexuality at that point we later learned that of course stephen sondheim was gay and you you write a scene in which they the first night they spend together lying in bed side by side just essentially staring at the ceiling not having any idea what the heck they're doing there together. It's it's torture. I, I I loved writing that scene because I understood that feeling pretty well. I think we've all been there at some point in our lives, but maybe not, you know, at that age. But, you know, Mary had to give it a try. And I think at that time in his life, Sondheim, although he knew he was gay, and she knew too, he had told her many years earlier, but Mary thought that wasn't necessarily the most important thing in a meaningful relationship, how, how you had sex. Um, and for her, I, you know, I, I like to, I recently came to a thought that I wish I had put in the book. It's in a way her heart was connected more to her ear than to anything else. And she thrived and had an almost erotic uh, connection to intelligence and to, uh, creative beauty. And if that's where your heart is, then, and you're very close with Stephen Sondheim, how are you not going to try? Of course, it was a miserable failure. I mean, there was no way that could work. And they, they parted as, as good friends as they has, had started, I'm happy to say. But I feel like it's something she had to get through to sort of clear the decks for the next part of her life, which did involve a long and happy marriage. At, yes, with Hank uh, Gettle, and, and we'll talk about that a little bit in a couple of minutes. Um, real quickly, we're going to have to get to a break in a minute, but before we do, I think it's interesting, as Mary Rogers began deciding that she herself had a voice in uh, musical theater and began working on the show 
that became Once Upon a Mattress. Uh, you take us through some of the ways in which she felt about some of her father's work. I mean, she obviously revered a great deal of what he wrote, but she couldn't stand the saccharine songs that he wrote in a number of musicals. Um, for instance, you tell us, or she tells us through you, that uh, she thinks Carousel is brilliant, but if it had been up to her, You'll Never Walk Alone would have been cut out of the show. It was just, we don't need that kind of saccharine thing. She later <laughs> uh, talks about a couple of songs. She doesn't like the sound of music at all. Climb Every Mountain, what is that? What is a lark learning <laughs> to sing a spread? I, it's fascinating what she does and doesn't like about her father's work, which will lead us to talk about her own work, yes? Yes, uh, I, I, I was particularly amused by her suggestions of rhymes that might have been more interesting uh, for those famous uh, praying larks in The Sound of Music. At one point, she suggests that it might have been more interesting if it had been a praying narc. Yeah. All right. Let's do this. Um, my guest today uh, is Jesse Green, chief theater critic for The New York Times. We're talking about the memoir that he wrote with Mary Rogers called Shy, the Alarming Outspoken Memoirs of Mary Rogers. When we come back, let's get to a conversation about the big hit Broadway musical that she did write, Once Upon a Mattress. We'll be back after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. My guest, uh, Jesse Green, chief theater critic for the New York Times. And I have to say, um, Jesse, I mentioned this to you in a note I wrote you. Um, my wife, Janice, and I do a lot of theater trips to New York, and you really are our go-to guy. Um, if you tell us we ought to see something, we usually know that we ought to see that. And I'm, so I'm really particularly glad to get to talk to you uh, today. But all right, Mary Rogers uh, finally decides she has a voice and wants to, in fact, write a musical. She uh, seizes upon, with a partner, with a writing partner, uh, basically a version of The Princess and the Pea that becomes Once Upon a Mattress. One of the interesting stories that you tell in there is as she's writing, she um, goes to her father. Uh, I think it may have been the first song that she wrote, and asks him to listen to it. And he does, and, and then he says to her, why did you do that in the middle of the song? And she said, well, I don't know. I just liked it. At that moment, what did she decide about sharing her work with her father? Well, she never did it again. Uh, <laughs> it is, you, can imagine, you can imagine the problem. You're, you're the daughter, and that's even more so than being the son. She is the daughter of the man almost universally acknowledged as the, the greatest American musical theater melodist, and in many ways, the, a great American composer across the board. And everyone thinks that he's writing your songs. She This trailed her from the beginning when she was starting to write, uh, you know, any she would write anything that anyone would pay her to do. And no matter how little it was, people had the absurd idea that he was doing it for her. And she would say, 
why would my father write my songs? He doesn't even like my songs. So, <laughs> uh, but, but she wanted his approval and she, you know, greatly appreciated his talent and it wouldn't have been so bad if she had, if she felt that she was in his line of talent. But at, at that point, she thought, I'm never doing this again. And in fact, after that, interestingly, if anyone would tell her that something she was writing sounded like a Rogers tune, she would tear it up. She just yeah. didn't want, she didn't want to be, as she was famously called after Once Upon a Mattress was a hit, uh, a chip off the old blockbuster. Yeah. Uh, we should point out that Once Upon a Mattress has been performed countless times. I mean, it's been revived uh, on Broadway, Sarah Jessica Parker, um, I, I want to talk about the original production. High schools do it all the time. I think Mary Rogers at one point said that in the Rogers and Hammerstein uh, collection of shows, of which this becomes one, it's like a, the seventh biggest moneymaker, which is interesting. But here's why I want to talk about that show for a couple minutes with you. Uh, George Abbott is brought in to direct the show. George Abbott, a legend as a theater director in New York. Uh, just one of the great, great directors, Jumbo, Boys from Syracuse, pal Joey. Mary Rogers isn't thrilled about George Abbott because like her father, he knows what he likes. He knows what he doesn't like. He doesn't really want to listen to anyone else. Um, and the first thing that happens is Mary Rogers has, and, and her partners have said, we want Nancy Walker, then a, a name in theater who people probably know better from her TV career, to play the princess. And Abbott says, no way. I want to develop my own star, which was part of what Abbott was all about, right? Jesse, he liked discovering talent. He didn't want to work with prima donnas and already established stars. Given that, who do they bring in? Well, at first they brought in somebody that you also may know from TV uh, named Pat Carroll. Uh, she was on the, the, the Beverly Hillbillies, I think. And yeah. uh, they were about to go, they were about to go with her when somebody had the idea, oh, there's this there's this young woman who's kind of making a name for herself on the Jack Parr show with some comedy songs. Why don't you listen to her? And as it happened, Mary's writing partner, Marshall Bearer, had worked with her previously and knew her and said, oh, she's great. And she came in to meet with Mary and to sing some of the songs. And she was obviously perfect for the role, but she was too pretty. And the role, as, as, as written, is supposed to be a kind of bedraggled, princess who's climbed uh, the, the wall of the castle and swum the moat to get there. So they told her, come back for the audition and wear the ugliest thing you own. And she came in some ugly brown suit and she performed for George Abbott. And he said, that's it. It was one. It, she was hired immediately. And that, of course, was Carol Burnett. Carol Burnett, um, the song that gave the title to the memoir. Uh, that uh, people think about uh, uh, it, when they think about that show, one of the songs, and Carol Burnett, was called Shy. Um, we're going to listen to just a little bit of it. And this was from uh, the, um, I think, the original 1959 production. that You can find it on the web in, in later uh, uh, instances in which Carol Burnett sang it on other shows. But I think this is from the very original production. So here's Carol Burnett singing one of the songs in that show that made her a star shy.
That was the show that put her on the map, Jesse. I love I love hearing that clip. One of the things you can learn about what a good composer does in musical theater is to listen to how Mary sets the title word. It's an octave jump. It uh, it makes the joke it makes the joke play because the joke of the song and you know incidentally the joke of the title of the book is that this is someone who is not shy. And so yeah. by, by giving Carol Burnett an octave leap on that very word, it just sells the joke and also just physically sets it up beautifully. It's so smartly done. And Mary, you know, had learned from the best, not just her father, but she and Sondheim basically spent their 20s working together on songs and teaching each other what they knew. And she really was impeccable about setting lyrics so that the jokes would land. Uh, and that show is filled with jokes. It's really extremely well-crafted. And um, so this puts her on the map, um, but coming out of uh, Once Upon a Mattress, she's a little bit at sea. She There are projects that capture her attention. There are people who want to work with her, um, but she never does come back. She writes The Mad Show, which is the other show that people think about when they think of her, uh, perhaps, as a composer. She, she's part of that project. Um, but it, it really becomes the one big show in her career. And much later in her life, Jesse, she says, I don't really know why I didn't keep doing that, right? Well, she by then had made her peace with it. She, she referred to her the medley of her hit. Um, yeah. So... She and she understood herself. This was a really interesting thing for me, and I, I found it moving for myself. But also part of what she wanted readers to hear was that if you don't, if you define yourself as needing to succeed at the highest level in only one thing, which is something mm -hmm. she feels that men especially do, then failure is going to be a disaster in your life. But if you think of yourself as having many interests and many abilities and not needing to have all of them be at the level of Richard Rogers or Stephen Sondheim, then you can have a pretty great life doing a variety of things. So when, when writing for the theater wasn't paying off for many reasons, even though her uh, composition skills were just improving year by year, such that many of the things she wrote that are not known at all are just beautiful works, even as that was happening, she thought, I have other arrows in my quiver. I'm going to try flinging some of those in the air. And lo and behold, they landed too. Uh, as you say, she became a, uh, a, an extremely successful author of young adult novels, the Freaky Friday series, which was itself turned into uh, more than one movie and more than one musical uh, and several books is one that is, uh, for many people of that era, of the 60s and 70s, particularly girls, was really a, a central book because, and, and, and it's clear how it's central to Mary as well, it's a book about learning to understand who your mother is and a mother lear yeah. learning to understand who her daughter is, which is something she yeah. couldn't achieve in real, real life. Um, let's do this. Uh, let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back and talk more with Jesse Green.
uh, Jesse Green, um, we're talking about your book written with Mary Rogers, Shy, The Alarmingly Outspoken Memoirs of Mary Rogers. There's so, I, there's so much that I would love to talk with you about in here, but, but with the limited time we have, I do want to uh, capture a few other uh, moments uh, that are in the book. One of them that I think is really important, this is usually a political show, is there is a political connection to Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein's work, and eventually Mary Rogers, who oversees the estate uh, and the and the uh, the body of the Rogers and Hammerstein Library in South Pacific. Oscar Hammerstein wrote a song called "You've Got to Be Taught." It's the portion of the story where um, uh, we see Lieutenant Joe Cable played in the production we're going to listen to a little bit of by Matthew Morrison, who is famous for Glee, um, has fallen in love with a young Polynesian woman. Um, And, of course, it's a period of time in in American life when that's unheard of. And he actually sings a song that Rogers and Hammerstein wrote called You've Got to Be Taught. Let's listen to just a little bit of it and talk about What happened in Georgia when the show came here? You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made and people whose skin is a deep... So, uh, Jesse Green, I think that's a 2008 Lincoln Center production of South Pacific with Kelly O'Hara as uh, Nellie Forbush. Um, but when it originally was produced and went on the road, it came to Atlanta. And the Georgia legislature, when uh, members heard about that song, actually passed a law which forbade shows to come into town, which talked about miscegenation, uh, talked about interracial relationships. Um, And as a result of what happened here, Mary Rogers, much later when she finally sold the rights to all the uh, Rogers and Hammerstein material, put in a provision that said that show could never be produced if that song was eliminated. I think that's really interesting. Well, it was a real reflection of uh, the politics of her father, but especially of Oscar Hammerstein. Her father was a sort of an ordinary liberal of that period, but was very uh, loath to put himself out there in case somebody would not like him for it. Hammerstein really stood up for his beliefs much more publicly. And in that song, which is a an extremely bitter uh, indictment, not, mm-hmm. not of racism in general in the world, but in oneself, because this guy, as you mentioned, it's, it's not that somebody's preventing him from uh, loving the girl he loves. It's that he's preventing himself. He can't get out of his training to distrust anyone who's different from him. So it's it's quite a bitter song, and Hammerstein uh, really in, insisted on it. And uh, yeah, as you say, so did Mary and so did Hammerstein's children. There are no other restrictions on yeah. any material in the, in the canon. It, it is a unique thing. I, I want to stick with South Pacific, that production particularly, for just a moment, because I think it relates to of what Mary Rogers understood about her father's 
who had really significant depression off and on throughout his life. Um, she saw it unfolding. But at one point she says that while he was depressed and always unhappy about life, she had to believe that somewhere inside of him was a different attitude about life because otherwise he could not have turned out such gorgeous music. And the reason I think about that South Pacific production is I took my wife and kids to see that Lincoln Center production, Bartlett Chair. And as you know, uh, the, or the audience was seated on three sides of the biggest orchestra that Lincoln Center could put together for that show. And I remember when the overture strikes up and we hear the first chords from Bali High, that the covering over the orchestra rolls back and we see the entire orchestra. And it put a lump in my throat to think about how gorgeous the music was that Mary Rogers' father was able to create and why she thought that somewhere inside of him he couldn't have been as miserable as he seemed. I had exactly that experience, Bill, and I saw it many times, <laughs> and I've had it every single time. Uh, you know, I think it's, you know, as a theater critic, for me, it was partly feeling the loss of that as an ordinary part of our theater-going experience. Part of the reason it was so moving was that there were 40 instrumentalists in that pit, and we're lucky if we get seven now in yeah. most musical productions. But part of it was because the reason that the score called for that many instrumentalists is because it it, it could support its emotion and its beauty could support all of that investment of richness and 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 funds, of course. And I I don't know, honestly, neither Mary nor I could ever finally explain how someone so bitterly depressed and unhappy with the world and himself, as you read in the book, coming from, you know, a pretty messed up family, uh, still had that in him. It's it's a question whether that's enough for, you know, if you're going to be a parent, is it enough to only offer love through your work? It was it, in the end, it was enough for Mary. And I suppose it's been enough for those of us who love to go to the theater. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting way to look at that. Um, I think one of the most um, moving moments of your book, I, I talked about the dialogue between your footnotes and her uh, uh, talking about her own life, is um, it's when she's talking about finally meeting Hank Gettle, the man who will be her uh, partner, her husband, until he passes away, um, after a miserable first marriage, after lots of affairs. She's very outspoken about her own sexuality, by the way, which is also interesting. But she says this, we interrupt this program for a bulletin. I'm so glad to have reached this point in the story, which means meeting Hank. It's like finding your way home in a song bridge. I know I set out to shock everyone with the truth, but it's tiresome, isn't it? And kind of grandiose, don't you think? And then you respond to her. And, and people should read the book. I won't re read it all. But you say, no, Mary, I don't, meaning it's not grandiose. And I'm going to come out of this footnote closet and say so. You're too hard on yourself or hard on yourself for the wrong reasons. And you go on and talk about why she has to be willing to think of herself in much more positive terms. And that's just such a moving moment uh, in this book, Jesse. 
Well, it was a moving moment in our relationship. It was late in the game. I I didn't know it, but uh, when we had that actual conversation that's recreated there, uh, I think she had less than a year to live. And I came to understand what what I was doing in in working with her on the book. I wanted to sort of reframe her for people, not just as the incredibly witty observer of everyone else's foibles, but as a kind of unique thinker of her period, a, a, a creative artist, and someone who in the third act of her career did a tremendous amount for young artists when she was the chairman of the board of the Juilliard School for many years. And to give her something that I guess I understood I wouldn't be able to give her in the finished book. I didn't consciously understand that she wouldn't be there for the book to be actually published. But I, I wanted to insist to her that the constant positioning of herself as a B-level, interesting enough kind of person was not how the world would see her if she was presented fully and fairly. Um, there's another powerful moment that comes really at the very end of the book. You talk about the fact that she had become very ill. Your meetings with her became less frequent. She didn't have the energy to have as much time, spend as much time with you. Um, and we come to a point where she says, or you write that she says to you, you have to face facts. This may be the last time we see each other. And then she says, and I, I believe this is true, you cry so easily. I don't know you, but I can imagine that's probably true about you, Jesse. I hope yeah. we would finish this together, but you know what to do. Just, just please don't make it dull like mummies and daddies. Include everything except what we can't. Otherwise, what's the point? We all F up and eventually putrefy, but at least I had fun. And didn't you too? And you say Mary was right about two things. I did have fun, and I did not see her again. A very difficult moment for you personally. Well, yes, uh, and it's totally true. I do cry easily, and she was not a crier. <laughs> she she didn't like she 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 didn't love to see it because it made her uh, feel like she had to solve a problem, and she rarely cried herself except for positive things. She cried at people saying wonderful things or or when someone would apologize without being forced to or when there was beautiful music but she did not cry she had learned she had taught herself not to cry for her own sorrows um it's another one of the reasons why i really encourage people to pick up this book and and read it because of this back and forth conversation um, we're almost out of time, Jesse, but I do want to mention, at least for a minute, Adam Gettle. I mean, Mary Rogers is sandwiched, be sandwiched between two remarkable composers, her father, of course, but then her son, Adam, who has uh, established himself uh, in, a, in a powerful way. He, he wrote, uh, of course, uh, Floyd Collins, which isn't well known by a lot of theater people unless you really are a lover of Adam Gettle's work. He went on to write in, uh, Light in the Piazza which uh, starred the remarkable Victoria Clark, who just sings the heck out of his score. Um, and, and he, so she's gone, her father's gone, but Adam Gettle, hearing different music than either of them in his own head, continues the Rogers-Gettle heritage, yes? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, she was instrumental in that, both in 
observing at a very early age his obvious talent. Um, there's a funny little scene where she hears him singing and it's like, oh my God, he's, he's like four yeah. years old and and uh, supports it in a way that was just not the case in her own upbringing and uh, tries to teach him, you know, some things about how to write songs, which very quickly she realizes uh, he's, he's grown beyond her. And it's a, it's a wonderful and moving uh, progression to see the, the how she took her father's influence, took it as far as she could take it, and in a way handed it off to her son, Adam, to take further. And, uh, of course, we hope for a lot more from him in the coming years. Yeah. I, I go back to Myths and Hymns, which was a song cycle that really put him on the map, at least for me and, and I think a few other people. So he is really worth listening to if you don't necessarily uh, know his uh, work out there. Uh, as we come to the close, uh, Jesse, I do want to go back to something you said near the start of the show, which is she was never able, Mary Rogers, quite to forgive her mother. Um, she, as we said, she said, I wish I'd had a mother who loved me. But as you pointed out, she did forgive her father because she says, all I have to do is go to an orchestra rehearsal of Carousel or Oklahoma and I am, and it mitigates all of the difficult times I had with him. He gave us the world and me such a remarkable gift. That was, it seems to me, the perfect way to put a coda on her story. Yes, and particularly Carousel. If you, if you think about what Carousel mm -hmm. is, fundamentally it's the story of a husband and father who fail who fails mm. his wife and child and who is given a chance to correct it and to find a way to connect to her in the in the last act of the show and in essence that's what happened between Mary and her father he corrected the failure through the gift and handed it on to her Jesse Green we are completely out of time uh, for today's show the book is shy the Alarmingly Outspoken Memoirs of Mary Rogers. As I said, I think this book is just a wonderful gift to all of us who love musical theater. I think it's also a gift um, in the sense that Mary Rogers, in many ways, was a, uh, a woman ahead of her time in the 50s and 60s and beyond, really looking for a way to have her own uh, uh, life and uh, career and I think the book is important in that way, but it's also the dialogue between the two of you that's so beautiful to watch unfold. So thank you, Jesse Green, very much for being with us today for Political Rewind. It's been a real pleasure, Jesse. Thank you, Bill. A great pleasure for me as well. All right. Um, we are out of time. Uh, we're back again with a new show on Monday. In the meantime, I hope you all have a great weekend. Uh, politics, again, take center stage on Political Rewind next week. In the meantime, all of you out there, take care, stay healthy. And as I say, those of you who are, are still looking at COVID, as somebody who's now recovered from it, please get every shot you possibly can. <laughs> That's it. We'll see you all on the show next week. Bye-bye, everybody.